Thanks, Drew and Heather. Hi again, everybody. How's it going? Good. Um, all right. Last week, two really important events happened in my life. Two events that are obviously deeply interconnected. The first is my grandmother's 100th birthday. And the second is Justin Timberlake releasing a new single. <laughs> and let's talk about them both in turn. So first, my grandmother, Hazel Laverne Redis Lefevre, born January 28, 1924, in Dallas, Texas, turned 100. You'll see some pictures coming up on the screen. My grandma has fairly limited mobility, as you would expect at 100, and she's had macular degeneration, which has been sort of robbing her of a lot of her eyesight for um, the last couple of decades, really. So she can't get up and move around a ton, but she is still mentally really sharp, and she can crack up a room when she wants to. Sunday night, we had a little birthday dinner for her. Earlier in the day, they had a little time when neighbors could sort of stop by and greet her and wish her happy birthday. Some of them brought flowers, even though they were told not to bring gifts. One neighbor, an 83-year-old herself, wrote a poem for my grandmother, sort of retelling some of the events of her life in rhyming couplets, which was adorable. Apparently, one teenager and his mom were just walking by, walking their dog, and they don't know my grandmother at all, but they saw the happy 100th birthday sign and decided they had to get her some candy and bring it by. And so they came and visited. And apparently it was all the, the, the teenage boy who wanted to do that, which was, uh, I thought, really cool. My aunt and her husband came up from New Orleans for the weekend, and we just had a great time together. We laughed. We had breakfast for dinner, which is the greatest thing in the world. Can I get an amen? And I got a chance to pray for my grandmother and thank God for the family that she's built which was uh, a really meaningful experience for me. Uh, it was a great day, and making it to 100 is quite an achievement. Significantly less than 1% of the population does so. And uh, my grandmother has had a wonderfully full life. She had three children and one remarkable grandson. She only one. I'm not like forgetting other grandchildren. It was only me. Anyways, um, that would be really mean. Uh, anyways, um, she was a nurse for many years. She was educated in a time when few women were, which has always amazed me. She's lived all over the place in Texas, in Southern Illinois, in New York City, even Vietnam for several years during the war when my grandfather was an English teacher there. She was born during the presidency of Calvin Coolidge, and you'll be forgiven if you have no idea when that was, because I was like, who's Calvin Coolidge? Just kidding, I knew that Calvin Coolidge was a president, but anyways, she's lived through 17 different presidencies. She was a child when the stock market crashed in 1929, beginning the Great Depression. She was 15 when World War II began in Europe, 17 when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, beginning the American participation in World War II. She was 20 on D-Day, 
She was 30 when Brown versus Board of Education legally ended segregation in the United States. She was 39 when JFK was assassinated, 44 when Dr. King was assassinated. She lived through both the building and the tearing down of the Berlin Wall, the beginning and the end of the Cold War. She lived before the first U.S. television broadcast station existed and after the invention and proliferation of the smartphone. Sitting there on Sunday, I couldn't help but marvel at the life that she's living and all that she's seen. And, um, and honestly, just have some incredible personal gratitude for that life and that story. We had four generations in one room that day which doesn't happen often anymore. My kids were there. My kids exist in part because of her, right? And they've been blessed to know her, like to really know her and have a relationship with her. I remember when I was a kid sleeping on the floor of her room when my mom and I would visit them for Christmas every year. And I gave her the nickname Snazel. Again, her name is Hazel. I gave her the nickname Snazel because of how loud she snored. And she has kind of held on to the nickname for the rest of her life. I told you, wonderful grandson she has. And now my kids will have stories of her as well. Hopefully not giving her nicknames like that, but. On Sunday, her birthday cake was um, this kind of beautiful like half chocolate, half vanilla thing with strawberries and jelly um, running down the middle, which might sound insignificant, but um, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but it, it brought up some memories. It gave us an opportunity to reminisce uh, back on what I think was my 10th birthday when my mom stayed up all night making my birthday cake from scratch, complete with fresh strawberries layered in between the layers of the cake and strawberry jelly and all of that. It's the only time in my life I remember my mom making a cake from scratch. That wasn't really her jam, but man, she really went for it that night. And as we left our apartment building for my birthday party in the morning, my grandmother was carrying the cake and stumbled down the front steps and flipped the cake onto the concrete, onto the, the walkway in front. And it was one of those like slow motion train wrecks that you see happening. And when it happens, like you can't really do anything but laugh. And it's become like family lore ever since. We, we scraped it all into the flower bed in front of our apartment building. And so for literally the rest of my childhood, we joked that the flowers were always so beautiful because of the cake that they got to eat that one year. I felt such deep gratitude and wonder for her life that day. But I also couldn't help as I sat there singing her happy birthday and enjoying our time together, I couldn't help but reflect on the people that weren't there. She lost her husband nearly 20 years ago, but in many ways she lost him years before that as dementia took away the brain and the mind of one of the smartest people I've ever known. That same year, she lost her only son. Both of the men in her life gone in the span of like six months. 
Um, we were super grateful for all of the neighbors that came by. I mean, that was, was really, really cool. But they were there in the absence of like true friends, right? Lifelong friends, the friends she used to laugh with and drink wine with and play bridge with for all those years. Because most of those friends were already gone. There is a wonder in turning 100 <clears throat> but I have to imagine that there's, there's a lot of sadness and grief in those 100 years as well, right? There's, there's this famous line in the Dark Knight movie. Um, and yes, I'm about to relate my, my grandmother's 100th birthday to the Dark Knight because everything relates to the Christopher Nolan uh, Batman trilogy. But there's this famous line in the Dark Knight, you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And I wonder if like something similar can't be said just about time and life in general, right? I mean, you either, you either die too young or you live long enough to experience the pain of watching others do so. I mean, either way, right? Human life is a complex concoction of beauty and tragedy. Now, this is getting a little depressing, so let's change directions. Let's lighten the mood. Let's talk about our second story from this week. Justin Timberlake has a new single out entitled Selfish and a new album coming out on March 1st entitled Everything I Thought I Was. And this got me thinking, as most things do. I'll be honest, I, I've always felt a, you know, a special connection to Justin Timberlake. I feel like he just gets me. Like if we met, like we would just, we would be friends. I'm just kidding, that's not really it. But he's actually almost exactly my age, right? Like he was born in, in 1981, same year that I was. He would have graduated high school the same year that Holly and I did. He was at the high, he was at NSYNC high school. I don't even know how you graduate high school when you're a multimillionaire at 16. But nevertheless, had he gone to a normal high school, he would have graduated the same year as me. So me, my wife, our particular age cohort, we've been going through the same life stages as Justin Timberlake, right? Like we've kind of grown up together, albeit in very different worlds with slightly different paychecks. I don't know if you know this, but you don't pay me Justin Timberlake money. <laughs> In the music video, he has like a scruffy beard, kind of. And like, I noticed that he's got like some legit gray coming out in the beard, which I do as well. And I gotta be honest, like I appreciated the fact that he just kept it in the video. Like he didn't shave, he didn't Grecian formula that thing. It was just like, you know what? I'm 43, let's let it ride. Here's really why I'm talking about this. I have this major pet peeve with musicians. And it's when they don't evolve or mature musically. Like a lot of musicians that get famous in like their teens or their 20s, when they're like 35 or older, are essentially making the same kind of music that they were in their early 20s with the same themes and the same images and all of that. And Listen, I get it, right? That's where the market is at. That's where the money is. Side note for reflection, just in general. Consumer capitalism seems to create a kind of arrested development where culture is always oriented to the people that spend the most money 
which also incidentally happened to be the youngest. What happens to a society when market forces dictate that its culture is already, always oriented to the 15 to 29 age bracket? Might it be that that culture would find itself unable to grow up, lacking true elders in all its major institutions, constantly catering to the whims of its least mature people rather than trying to actually lead them to a better place? Just a total hypothetical, no connection to real life. All the stuff that you care about in your youth, it sells, right? It makes money, but people are also meant to grow and mature. I'm pretty pumped about the Usher Super Bowl halftime show coming up next weekend, right? Because we're to the point where like, Usher's kind of nostalgic, which is weird, but this was a huge annoyance for a long time with me with Usher. Listen, if you got it bad when you're 20, fine. But if you're still trying to make love in the club when you're in your 30s, bro, it might be time to grow up. Usher was the soundtrack of my teens and 20s, but at 30, I was married with two kids. I was going to bed at like 9 p.m. I ain't trying to sing about making love in the club. Come on, bro. Now, back to JT. When I saw he had an album coming out, I had mixed emotions. My thought was, I wonder what this is gonna be like. Is he gonna take the wide road of consumerism, of pretending to have an eternal youth in order to stay relevant and make money? Or will he take that narrower road and maybe have something to say? I mean, he's 43, just like I'll be in a couple months. All that dancing he's been doing, I know his knees hurt. I know he sees the gray in that beard. I know he's lived long enough to question fame. To use Richard Rohr's terminology, is he just gonna double down on the first half of life stuff? Are we gonna get to see him embark on a second half of life journey? and maybe have something deeper to say. I don't know, we'll see. I know it seems odd and trivial to connect these two things, but for me, this past week served as a, a parable of sorts. It reminded me of something that we talked about back in April at the beginning of Holy Week, the ancient Christian concept of memento mori, of remembering death living with an intentional awareness of death, of your mortality, of your temporality. To this day, many Christian monasteries make their cemeteries a central part of their everyday lives, of their rituals, of their practices, of their prayer life, of everything. And many of them have signs in them that say things like, where you are, they once were, and where they are, you soon will be. There is a counterintuitive wisdom at the heart of Christianity, counterintuitive to our time and place, but probably not as much to the vast majority of 
humans that have lived throughout the history of the world. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves that, that we are the anomaly. Our culture tries to create human fulfillment through human elevation, human magnification, through building self-esteem, through self-expression and self-empowerment, through making ourselves grander, more unique, more significant, or at least believing that we are. But Christianity has always taught that wisdom, hope, fulfillment, they're found in making ourselves smaller, in confronting our insignificance. Genesis 3.19, which we repeat every year on Ash Wednesday, says, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Matthew 2016, Jesus said the last will be first and the first will be last. All the scrambling of, for self-elevation is missing the point. We find our lives by losing them. In Romans 12.3, Paul says, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. In our faith tradition, we find life, capital L, life, real life, by looking directly into the face of our finitude and our fragility, of our insignificance in the cosmos, because only in our smallness can we really see God's grandness. Only in our finiteness can we see that God is infinite. Only when we admit our individual insignificance can we find the immense significance that God offers us, a significance that is given, never earned. Now, I'm talking about all this today because I think this is where some of our texts were taking us this morning. Our first Old Testament text from Isaiah 40 said this, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, none of them is missing. This poem by the prophet Isaiah is, of course, about the greatness of God. But it's about the greatness of God in correspondence to the smallness of human beings. It speaks in a sense of that, that same theological insight that we learn from the book of Job. 
Job, amidst his affliction and grief and loss, eventually he lashes out at God, at the unfairness of it all. And God responds with this. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Parents, you get where he's coming from, right? Please explain to me all your wisdom about the world. There's a fundamental insight in the Judeo-Christian tradition, an insight that we have lost in our world. Matter of fact, not just lost, we we actively rebel against it. In our world of individualism and self-expression, self-actualization, and the insight is simply this, you're not that special. Your life is a speck, a dot on the cosmic timeline and you don't know much of anything. Your vision and perspective are hopelessly limited, as is your influence on human history. And despite the self-congratulatory nature of the Enlightenment and modern society, we could try as hard as we might, and there's not much we can do to change that. All our opinions and wisdom and intelligence and achievements are an elaborate denial of death. Like Ecclesiastes says, they will fade like a mist, like vapor, havel, here and gone. Elon Musk can be the richest person in the history of the world and shoot a rocket off to Mars. And when all is said and done, he will still die like the poorest, least educated person that's ever lived on this planet. And that rocket will still be sitting on the closest planet orbiting our same sun in our own galaxy, in a galaxy of 100 billion stars, in a universe of 2 trillion galaxies. We are small and feeble and ephemeral. And acknowledging this seems depressing, does it not? But it's not. It's really not. Because only when you give up on earning, on being spectacular, on being God yourself, can you receive the gift that's being offered to you. We really only can reach for God when we come to the end of our own rope. There's this famous line in Proverbs, I'm sure you all know it. It says, the fear of the Lord 
is the beginning of wisdom. And sometimes this sounds like really wrong or even dangerous to us in our day and age, does it not? I mean, a couple years ago, I actually heard about a study or a series of studies that looked into how people's perceptions, their images of God actually affect their lives and their psyches. And people who had an image, a perception of a primarily loving God, they had better mental health outcomes. They gave more money to charity. They had more friendships and relationships. Just in general, they had better, more joyous, more fulfilling lives. By contrast, people who had primarily an image of a more angry, vengeful God had the opposite. They had higher levels of anxiety, higher levels of depression, less generosity, fewer relationships. So being afraid of God in that sense is definitely not a good thing. And the God that we see in Jesus is surely not to be feared in that way. But that's not the kind of fear that Proverbs is talking about in this line. This type of fear can also be translated as reverence or awe. I mean, what it really means is to have an appropriate understanding of your place in the cosmos. An appropriate grasp of the relationship between God and you. Which, if you think about it, is really just true. If a God exists and created the universe, that God has to transcend said universe in complexity, in power, in greatness, and thus is far beyond your comprehension. And if that's the truth, then the beginning of wisdom would, first and foremost, be simply recognizing that fact. It would be situating yourself appropriately in the cosmos. Last week, Curtis had an amazing sermon on wonder. And if you missed it, please go back and listen to it. Specifically, talking about how we have to have eyes to see the beauty and the wonder of the world all around us. Side note, Curtis tried really, really hard to get me to use a bluey clip in this sermon, but I was like, I can't do it, man. (laughs) And fostering practices that help us see the beauty, the wonder around us, to see that earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. I think this truth that we're talking about today is the other side of that coin. It's the corresponding truth to the wonder truth. Fundamental to the Christian life is this paradox between wonder and humility, between Shinrin Yoku, as Curtis talked about last week, nature immersion, therapy, being immersed in the beauty of the world around you, but also memento mori, Remembering death. Somehow both of those practices anchor us in God because both of those things point us beyond ourselves. Wonder points us to the God who made all of the stuff that is wonderful. And humility 
points us to God by reminding us that only in Him can our ephemeral, small, little lives mean something great and something eternal. Now, this isn't a very practical sermon at this point, I realize. So I want to conclude with a piece of practical-ish wisdom. So our gospel text this morning was from Mark chapter 1. We're in the series of, we're in the season of Epiphany, so we get a lot of these early gospel stories in it. After calling the first disciples and healing Simon's mother-in-law, Mark tells us that that evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Everyone is looking for you. Eh, let's go somewhere else. In the church, we talk a lot, we use the story to talk a lot about how even Jesus prayed. How he took time to step away into silence and solitude and connect with God in prayer. And this is an important fact for us to recognize, but if we're all being honest, the church has sometimes made this feel kind of trite, right? Well, here's my observation from this story that maybe will resonate more with us in our current reality. As far as I can tell, Jesus had no concern whatsoever for usefulness or efficiency. Everyone is looking for him. He just healed a bunch of people. People want more. Everyone is looking for him. There is an expectation that he will meet all the practical demands his gifts, powers, and skills imply, and he just seems completely uninterested. He is seemingly completely unconcerned with optimization or effectiveness. In our book club book this month on Getting Out of Bed by Alan Noble, Alan Noble says this, usefulness is the sole criterion for the world, the flesh, or the devil. But you have no use value to God. We actually had an interesting conversation about this yesterday. He doesn't say you are useless to God, but you have no use value to God. You can't. There is nothing he needs. You can't cease being useful to God because you were never useful to begin with. That's not why he created you. And it's not why he continues to sustain your existence in the world. His creation of you was gratuitous, prodigal. He made you just because he loves you and for his own good pleasure. Every other reason to live demands that you remain useful. And one day, your use will run out. 
Jesus's prayer life, I think, embodies this. It's not a prayer life of piety or personal obligation. It's a prayer life that seems to enable him to play a completely different game than the world is playing. It's a prayer life that helps him step out of the tyranny of usefulness and accomplishment and self-aggrandizement and into the cosmology of grace, of a love that asks you to prove nothing. Jesus is unhurried, unperturbed, a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. If you want to find a life with that dynamite, paradoxical combination of wonder and humility, I think you will need something like this. A prayer life, rhythms, habits, practices that can detach you from chronos time, as we've talked about, common time, the time enslaved to usefulness, and enables you to connect with kairos time, deep time, an unhurried time, unhurried because it lives in the economy of grace and love that never has to be earned. This is what we're called to. Wonder and humility. And the only way we'll get there is a prayer life like Jesus has. Lent starts in a week and a half. On a practical level, I would encourage you to think about and pray about what you can do during those six beautiful weeks to practice Shinrin Yoku and Memento Mori wonder and humility. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that usefulness is not a category that makes sense in your relationship to us. That we are a gratuitous, prodigal creation of yours made for love to first receive love and then pass that love on. In order to live in that, though, we've, we've got to have wonder and humility. Help us break free of the, the tyranny of some of the stuff in our world that, that keeps us away from those two things. Help us to connect deeply with you in the season ahead. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.